Well, good morning. My prayer is that you guys all had an awesome week this week, although I think summer is officially here. I was at a swim meet all week, and uh, I was very jealous of the guy next to me because he had a bucket with some kind of air conditioning unit that was on top of it, and I was, I was, I was very envious, and then I had to repent of that. But, you know, anyway, we're working through that. You know, this morning we're continuing on in this series that we've been doing on Thank God It's Mondays. And today we're going to talk a little bit about what God has to say about how to be a success in life. Both on the job, but I think in generally, uh, God has so much wisdom to give us on how to live this life in a way that allows us to be lights in the midst of the darkness, right? And so we're going to look at Solomon today. We're going to look at four principles that he gives us this morning on how to accomplish this very thing and how it is that we can actually get the job done right in our lives. Now, the foundation for these principles is found uh, for us in Proverbs 16, verse 3, where it says this, Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. In Proverbs 3, 6, it also says, in everything you do, put God first, and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. And so if you want to simplify a rather difficult discussion for some of us, those verses that I just read give the foundation for what it is to be a success in life. And both of those verses just essentially say this, to be a success in life, you have to put God first. We talked about a heavenly order all the way through these last three series, and if we keep God first, life just makes so much more sense. It simplifies life. It, it gives clarity of life. It gives salvation, right? It, it just is a better way to go about things. And so maybe the question is, is how do we do that exactly? And so again, we're going to take a look at these four principles that, God, that Solomon gives us for how to be a success in life. And the neat thing about these four principles is that regardless of the kind of work you do, they work. Whether you're a homeworker or a CEO, whether you're in the military, whether you're in school, or you just got done with VBS, whether you're an employer or an employee, whether you're nearing retirement or just starting into the job market. Because regardless of what you do, you can apply these four principles to life. And if you do, I promise you, you'll be amazed at the difference they can make. And so I want to take a look at the different ones that God gives us this morning. But again, we're talking about this idea of vocation. And so if you're working, you have a job on Monday morning, that's part of your vocation right now. But then so is raising the kids, right? And so is taking care of maybe some, some older parents that you have in your life. If you're retired, it's sometimes taking care of your grandkids. Or it's the volunteer work that you do. Or it's, it's different things that you do to encompass your time with. It's the purpose, the work that God's given you at this time. So let's take a look at some of these things that God gives us. One of the first ones he gives us is just this, that we need to learn to work for a purpose, with a purpose. And that's the difference between successful people and unsuccessful people. They have a purpose or they have a sense of mission in life. In fact, if I were to ask you, why is it that you work? I asked that actually a few weeks ago. Would you have an answer? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? But, but here's the deal. Successful people always have an answer to that because they always have this sense of purpose. They know why they're doing what they're doing. And, and you know what? That's important because without it, you, your work becomes kind of a prison. You kind of feel like this hamster going around and around and around with no particular destination in mind. And life becomes very overwhelming in those times. In Proverbs 17, 24, it says, an intelligent man then aims at wise actions, but a fool starts off in many directions. I don't know if you know anybody like that, somebody who attempts 50 different things at one time but never really accomplishes anything. Um, sometimes perfectionists get that way. They want to do it right, so they start this thing over here, but, but then they get sidetracked and they go do this over here, and, and they never quite finish anything because it's got to be perfect. And so instead of finishing, they just move down to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. Solomon knew a lot of these kind of people. And so he's saying here that regardless of what kind of job that you have to do, you must be moving toward a goal. You must have a direction in life. 
In fact, the very first words recorded of Jesus, his very first public words were these. He was 12 years old. I must be about my father's business. That's what I call working with a purpose. He's 12 years old and he says, I must be about my father's business. And then his very last words that were recorded were on the cross where he says, it is finished. It's kind of like bookends on his life, right? I must be about my father's business and then it is finished. That's working with a purpose. Paul in Philippians says, this one thing I do, not these 40 things I dabble in, but this one thing I do, he worked with a purpose. And the Bible says that's got to be the starting point. In Proverbs 21 verse 5, it says, the plans of a diligent person lead to profit. In other words, plan your work and work your plan. If you want to score a touchdown, you've got to have a game plan. And so diligent people work their, plan their work and they have a purpose. And I share that because I've talked to so many people that go through this, what we'll call a midlife crisis, right? And they'll say stuff like this, I've worked so long and I've worked so hard. For what? It's a person who didn't clarify his purpose from the very beginning. So guess his work for a purpose. Now I want to apply this just in a different way this morning because it applies to way more than just work. And this has been on my heart, I guess, for a few days now. There was a, an interview, I guess, of... Uh, OMB position, Office of Management and Budget for our country. And he was up for position and they were being quizzed and asked questions by different um, senators and stuff and, and about their job, about different things. And there was a, a senator, Bernie Sanders, that was really grilling him, not on anything to do with finance, but on his Christian faith. He had written, this guy who was applying for the job, I guess, or was nominated, he had written an article for his Christian college, and one of the things that he said in the article um, concerning Muslims is that they stood condemned before God. It's an interesting thing, and anyway, Bernie picked this up, and he was going after, and he says, do you believe that? Are all Muslims condemned before God? And then he said, are all Jews condemned before God? And, and it's an interesting kind of play. It's based on a lie, but I'll just ask you here this morning, What's the only way to go to heaven? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? In other words, we all stand condemned before God without Jesus, for there's no other name under heaven in which man can be saved except through Jesus Christ. And so it's been part of the Christian tenets. It's in Scripture. It's been something that's been believed for 2,000 plus years. But we live in a Christian culture, or we live in a, not a Christian culture, we live in a culture today of which we have a religion of what I'll call... Um, a PC, a PC religion. And anything that says, I'm not okay, you're not okay, must not be true in this religion. The reality is, if you, and they reference Jews, and they reference Muslims, and they reference Christians, and the only thing is, Bernie was sharing all this, because he was saying how that isn't true with anybody else, is that Christians do believe, unless you have Jesus Christ, that you go to hell. And Jews do believe if you don't have Yahweh in your life, you're in trouble. And Muslims believe that if you're not a pure Muslim or a Christian, that you should be killed. Those are all from, their, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and from the Koran, each making those different statements. So Bernie was spinning kind of a, a, a statement based on a lie, saying everybody's okay, all people go to heaven kind of thing. And he was condemning this man for his Christian faith. And then I guess a guy named Van Hollen kind of said, well, I'm a Christian, I believe that there's many ways to the same God. I just, I just, this has been a burden for me today. And so I just wanted to teach, there is no other name under heaven in which we can be saved. It's Jesus Christ. 
He's the only one that forgives our sins. And that may not be PC, but it's God's truth to us. That's why Jesus is a big deal. That's why we're called Christians to begin with. It's because we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. To this point, if we don't have a purpose in which we are living life, if we are not living life for heaven, for God's truth, for following Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we get pushed by the world in these different ways, if we're not living for this, we're going to crumble and fall. We need to start living life for a purpose, to hold to Jesus even when things get hard, to follow Jesus even when it's hard, because he holds the keys to everlasting life and nobody else does. it's been a burden because we live in a culture now that just says whatever they want to say. They base things on untruths and ignorance. But it sounds so persuasive. How dare you condemn a whole bunch of people? We've got to live for a purpose. Five weeks ago, we had five eighth graders here uh, with us, and they worked hard for three years studying and getting themselves ready to make this simple proclamation before the church that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of my life. They'd worked hard for three years studying God's word, assimilating it into their lives to the point where they not only fulfilled their baptismal promise, right, but they were ready to confess their faith in front of all of you guys. It's an awesome, awesome thing to be part of. To see these kids confess Jesus as their Lord is a big deal. But I'll tell you the truth, without a purpose guiding them, they wouldn't have stood before us like they did. There's way too many. There's a ton of people that age today that are simply not ready to make that proclamation, not even to their Lord. So God says, first and foremost, we got to work. We got to live with a purpose. He goes on and gives us another thing to think about too, and it's this. Insist on integrity. Regardless of what you do, insist on integrity because in the end, nothing truly lasts without it. In Proverbs 10, 9, it says, the man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. In other words, Solomon's just saying this, that the world is way more interested in image. How do I look? Where God's way more interested in integrity. What are you really? The world looks on the outside, dressed for success. Where God looks more on the inside. What do you really like inside? And if that's true, Solomon just says we need to learn to insist on integrity. I was reading a book this week on advertising. It was very disturbing. I I couldn't believe the lack of integrity I found in its pages. But I just want to share a part of this from chapter 3. It reads this way. The magic word that can make you rich is verisimilitude, having the appearance of truth. Not truth, but the appearance of truth. The power pulsating within this magic word is this. Verisimilitude is not truth. It is the appearance of truth. We have learned as we replace original idealism with cynicism that the whole truth and nothing but the truth not only does not set us free, it isn't particularly a shrewd way to sell, but the appearance of truth is, ah, that is the kingdom of heaven. Instead of being strapped to the cold metal table of facts, we have soft cushions of quasi-facts on which we can lean. The cornerstone of successful direct response copy is not truth, but having to read or regard what you write as truth. And that's the kind of stuff being taught in the business world today. It's apparently what's being taught in journalism today. The proverb says, if you want to be genuine, successful, insist on integrity. 
copy of Time magazine a few years ago. Whatever happened to ethics? Not since the reckless 1920s has the business world seen such searing scandals. White collar scams abound. Insider trading, money laundering, greed combined with technology has made stealing or, or made stealing more tempting than ever. Whatever happened to ethics? The Bible says in Proverbs 16:11, the Lord demands fairness in every business deal. In other words, God says if you want to be a success on life, you have to insist on integrity. And yet it seems today so, so few do. And I think that's why we're in the midst of an integrity crisis in our world today. In fact, one confirmation student put it this way. He said, it has become clear to me recently and seemingly become more and more important to me ever since to say what I mean and to mean what I say. I love that. God gives us another one. Never make excuses. Proverbs has a lot to say about laziness. It calls a lazy man a sluggard. It says a sluggard is always accusing, blaming everybody else, accusing and excusing. You know anybody who always is blaming somebody else, always accusing and excusing their behavior? Have you ever been somebody like that? Because it's amazing to me the excuses people will make just to justify their laziness or they're not wanting to do something. We can get to the height of creativity when we want to be lazy. When we want to rationalize our lack of accomplishment or our lack of effort, we're just geniuses. In fact, the word rationalize means rational lies. I heard about a pastor one time concerning this. He was so tired of listening to everybody else's excuses that in response to all those who had excuses for not coming to church, he listed his excuses for why he was going to be giving up sports. Football in the fall, he writes. Basketball in the winter. Baseball in the spring and summer. He says he's had it. He's going to quit attending sports once and for all. And here are his top 10 reasons. Every time, well, number one, every time I went, they asked for money. Number two, people I sat next to didn't seem very friendly. Three, the seats were too hard and I was not comfortable at all. Four, I went to a lot of games. I mean a lot, but the coach never came to call on me. I heard a pastor friend of mine one time said a woman asked him when he was going to go visit her. And he said, lady, you don't want to be that sick. Number five, referees made decisions that I couldn't agree with. Number six, game went into overtime and I was late getting home. Number seven, the band or the DJ or the organist played numbers that I'd never heard of before. It wasn't my style of music. Number eight, it seems the games are always scheduled when I wanted to do something else. Number nine, I suspect I was sitting next to some hypocrites. They came to see their friends and they talked during the whole game. Number 10, I was taken to too many games by my parents when I was growing up. I think that's great. It, but it just shows this, that even Christians are pros at making excuses. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, verse 23, it says, Work brings profit. Talk brings poverty. In other words, some people are great talkers. They're just not great doers. There's no action. It's all smoke and, and mirrors. They've got great plans, but he says, Talk brings poverty. The cost of procrastination is huge. Ecclesiastes 5.7 says, Dreaming instead of doing is foolishness. Father said to his teenage son, You need to do one hard thing every day. And the son says, Dad, I got out of bed. Father says, Then maybe you need to do two things every day. <laughs> I want to apply this one too, just a little bit. I was in a Bible study this week, and we were talking about faith. Another word for faith is trust. And there's a lot of people that say they believe certain things. But I want you to replace that word believe with trust. Do you really trust what it is that you say you believe? And I say that because I think for a lot of people, again, we trust, 
and I'll put a big circle here in what we trust, that if we die, Jesus will take us to heaven. We trust that Jesus will forgive us. And we trust those most of the time, unless we do something really bad, and then we, we doubt it for a period of time when we ask God like 500 times to forgive us for the same thing. There's a little bit of doubt there. But otherwise, we trust that we're forgiven. We trust that he'll take us to heaven, right? Is that for, pretty fair in that little box? Trusting God for things outside of that's really hard. And I use this example all the time, but if I, tr I could say I trust that chair will hold me up, intellectually I believe that looks pretty sturdy, but I only believe it if I go and sit down. God gives us all these promises in God's word. He gives us all these different things. You go through the gospels and you see him continually saying to his disciples, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter's walking on water, and then he starts to doubt. Walking on water, pretty impressive so far, I, I, I just have to say. And then he starts to doubt, and he starts sinking, and he gets back to the boat, Jesus says, why did you doubt? Why did you stop trusting me? Now, just to implicate everybody here, let me just say, God says all sorts of things in his word that we say we believe, but we don't actually put into practice. How about tithing? All sorts of promises related to tithing. He even says, test me in this. I'll open up the storehouses of heaven for you. It's one thing to believe that God will do that. It's another thing to tithe. God says, I want you to pray to me. I, you'd be amazed at how much I answer prayer. Come to me with your problems. Come to me with your struggles. Come to me with your prayers. It's one thing to say we believe that God will answer our prayer. It's another thing to persist in it. We live in a microwave culture, and if God doesn't answer, like, tomorrow, we're like, I don't know, I guess he said no. And we don't persist in prayer. We don't take prayer seriously. God says, I want to get to know you. I love you so much. I, I want to talk to you in my word. And we all say the Bible's super important. We all say we believe what the Bible says. The only problem is we don't actually know because we've never read it. If you trust God, there has to be some external proof that you actually do. Otherwise, knowledge is up there. But that belief looks like trust. And, and so as, as you come across this excuses part of the, this sermon, we have all sorts of excuses for why we're not trusting in God. And yet God in his patience says, I love you, I forgive you. This is part of the struggle of being a disciple of mine. I want you to trust. You're going to fail. I'm going to forgive you. And then I'm going to call you to trust me again. But we've got to stop making these excuses and staying where we are and continually seek him, confess to him, and follow him with our life. It's a big deal. Otherwise, when the sands change or when the winds change or when things get hard, you're going to find that those words don't sustain you the way you thought. Moves on to a next one. Resolve to stick with him. It's talking about staying power here, stamina, endurance. Proverbs 22, verse 29 says, Do you know a hardworking man? He, will, he shall be successful and stand before kings. In other words, successful people in life simply don't know how to quit. They persevere, they endure, they are determined, they keep on keeping on as they go through life. There's a myth that says that success, successful people do everything right, but that's not true. They fail as much as we do, perhaps even more than we do. The only thing that's different about them is they don't let it cause them to give up. They don't give up. They keep on keeping on. They learn from those failures and they become better and better. They don't live a perfect life. They stumble and fall a lot, but they keep up, get up, and they keep going. That seems to be a lost quality in our, in our culture today. I see so many people quitting on life in so many different areas today. But the only way you make failure permanent is to give up. Otherwise, 
It's called struggle. And God is with us in the struggle. Proverbs 24, verse 16 says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. In other words, even good guys fall. Even righteous people stumble. They make dumb decisions. They say dumb things. They make mistakes. They lose money. Even righteous men fall. But the difference is that because of Jesus, they can get up again. That because of Jesus, they can keep on keeping on. To quote a famous theologian, Scarlett O'Hare, tomorrow is another day. And truly, that's the gift that Jesus gives, isn't it? That because of Easter, because he rose from the grave, our past is past because we're actually forgiven of all the rotten stuff that we've done because we're clinging to Jesus. We've confessed those sins. We're forgiven. And that in every way allows tomorrow, right, to bring a day of second chances, to bring a day that we can begin again. And with that, all kinds of new possibilities. And that perhaps more than anything else allows us the strength to keep on going. For in the end, what makes us successful in life more than anything else is clinging to Jesus, clinging to his love. For that reminds us that we matter to him, that we have value and purpose. Clinging to the forgiveness that he won for us on the cross, for that gives us new beginnings, freedom to start over, strength to take new chances. Clinging to his promises, for that brings peace and understanding and clarity and confidence and hope that will be with us no matter what. Clinging to his strength, for the strength just to keep on going. In the end, whether it's in business, whether it's in home or with your family or whatever, that's really what's going to matter anyway. Did you cling to Jesus? My friends, my encouragement today is keep doing that very thing. Keep clinging to Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Let us pray. As we talk through these things on vocation, on our work, on how to bring you into the workplace, how to bring you more into our lives when it's not Sunday morning, well, there's a lot of stuff. And we see, Lord, even in these different quality characteristics, we see that that's the life that would make us lights in the midst of a dark world, that would make us different and would attract people to that light. We live in a world, Lord, that we see so many people going in the opposite direction of those things. There's so many things that we can, are concerning us, even as Christians, but, but just as parents, as we watch this new world that our kids are growing up in, it's changed and it's, it's different and it's less based on your truth, it seems. So, Father, give us a perseverance to keep on keeping on, to keep on following you. Give us the strength when times come that are just hard. And give us the sense, Lord, that you've got us all the way. And we pray that tonight or today in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. <laughs>